Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 775 with Susan Kane. Susan is a true luminarian, someone I've wanted to chat with for years, and now we are chatting. We are talking about how there is a surprising and uplifting power in sorrow and longing. And so this one is, is kind of fun and different. It's a little bit more philosophical and deep and a little bit less tactic, tactic, tactic. But nonetheless, I think quite applicable for giving a boost in courage, in confidence, in meaning, in purpose, in your career and whole life. So it's a rich conversation. I think you will find rewarding. So you'll learn one, two simple shifts to make you more courageous, two, how a bias for positivity can be holding you back, and three, how to keep your brain from wallowing in negativity. So if you want to check out our show notes or the transcripts or the links to bits that we mentioned here, please pay us a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP775 and check out some of our goodies at awesomeatyourjob.com. And if it's your first time listening to the show, I might recommend checking out those very first episodes, zero and then A, B, C, D, E, F, which are before episode one to give you a flavor for what we're all about here on the show. You can just sort to oldest to newest in your podcast player and find them easily that way. Now, here's Susan's story. Susan Kane is the number one best-selling author of Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, and Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which spent eight years on the New York Times bestseller list and has been translated into 40 languages. Susan's TED Talks have been viewed over 40 million times. LinkedIn named her the top sixth influencer in the world, just behind Richard Branson and Melinda French Gates. Susan partners with Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, and Dan Pink to curate the Next Big Idea Book Club. They donate all their proceeds to children's literacy programs. You can learn more at susankane.net. Big thanks to Susan for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Susan. Susan, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you so much, Pete. It is awesome to be here. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom and some insights from your latest book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. 
And congratulations on hitting number one on the New York Times bestseller list. That's pretty fantastic. Good job. <laughs> Thank you so much. But maybe first, I, I'm dying to know, and I think uh, many listeners are as well. So you're also quite famous for your book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And you do public speaking all the time. And I understand that wasn't your favorite thing to do. Could you maybe tell us how you found some some growth and development there? And did you learn to enjoy it all the more? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, so you have to know where I was starting from. Like, it wasn't just that I didn't enjoy speaking. It was that, like, I could sometimes literally vomit before a speech. And I would always lose five pounds in the week before a speech because I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. Like, it was very intense. And I used to be a lawyer before I became a writer. So during all that time I was a lawyer, I just gritted my teeth through that suffering. <laughs> but then when I became a writer and I like I really cared about getting my message out, I didn't want my phobia to stand in the way. So I tackled this issue that I had. And here's the secret. And what I'm about to say applies to any fear that your listeners might have. Any fear. The way to overcome any fear is you have to expose yourself to the thing you fear. You can't hide from it. But you have to do it in very, very small, very manageable doses. So you can't start by giving a TED talk if your fear is public speaking. You have to start by like going to like the nicest Toastmasters meeting you've ever seen. Or in my case, I went to this seminar for people with public speaking anxiety where everybody was really nice. And all you had to do is like you'd start by with these really small exercises. Like the first day you'd get up and say your name and sit back down. And Congratulations, you're done. And you'd ratchet it up little by little by little by little by little from there. And in this way, you're basically training your brain that the thing that it reacted to as if it were a saber-toothed tiger, you're basically training your brain, oh, it's not a dangerous tiger. It's a daffodil. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. That's cool. Yeah. And, and so it's just a long process, but anyone can do it is the great news. Well, I think that as I put my brain in that situation, I think one of the funnest parts for me would be just creatively ideating and, and trying to determine what might be that next super tiny step. Mm. And it's so funny. It's just like, with, with all, I'm thinking about like virtual reality. It's like, if you can't do it for real. <laughs> you could even do it there. So that's nifty. Yeah. It's interesting to me though, that you describe that as fun. So let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. Were you ever a nervous public speaker or no? And the reason I ask is because I never would have described the process as fun while I was in it. It was more like something I needed to do. I don't think the doing it is as much fun <laughs> so much as the thinking, oh, there's a super tiny step. That's something I could feel like I could get a victory on oh, yeah. that is not terrifyingly overwhelming. Right, so, right, right, right. <laughs> but yeah, the doing would be difficult. I'd say I, I never had the, the vomits uh, pre-public speaking. And I, but I never I, heard it called the vomits. I love that. <laughs> but I did, I certainly felt nerves. And it's, I guess I somehow managed to convince myself that I was excited. And then I, and then I believed it. And it's, it's a rush. I, I remember a, a speaking mentor. Uh, <laughs> so when it comes to public speaking, it's like, man, sometimes there's this electricity and sometimes you get electrocuted <laughs> uh, yeah. in terms of how it seems to go. And that's been my experience. I've had some talks that didn't go as well. And in a way, those have been super helpful in terms of taking a real good look. Like, what went wrong there? Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of it was assumptions I had made about the audience in advance. Like, oh, they're not all ready jazzed <laughs> about this topic. It, it's more of a general audience. And so, oopsies, lessons learned. But one, one fun thing about talking on how to be awesome at your job is that all the listeners already care about being awesome at their jobs. <laughs> so you got that covered. Yeah. So you already uh-huh. know what they're excited about hearing about. Uh-huh. Well, I'll give one other public speaking hack that I think is really huge for people who are afraid of public speaking, which is that if you are afraid of it, it is because you are attuning excessively to being judged. You know, you're like, your relationship with the audience emotionally is that they are the judge or perhaps the executioner, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like the penitent before them. That is not a helpful relationship, obviously. What I would try to turn that into is to think in advance, like what from your heart, like really think at a heart level, what is it that I want to convey? You know, what, what can I say that's going to be truly helpful today? Even if it's helpful to just one person in the audience, what could I do that could truly like elevate someone's life? And then you're going out there in a spirit of like, what can I give as opposed to how will I be judged? And it's a completely different energy, completely. Uh It's very transformative. I don't find that that works if you're like in a state of extreme, extreme anxiety. But once you get to the point where it's tamped down and you're like in in the realm of manageable butterflies, shifting your energy that way is really transformative. Beautiful. Well, Susan, you're already providing a... Fantastic insights, and we're not even on the main topic yet. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is going great. Well, all right. Well, tell us, bittersweet. Could you maybe kick us off by sharing a particularly surprising discovery you made while while researching and putting this together that has been really striking for folks? I think our culture. I know our culture is so confused. So bedazzled by the idea of being positive at all times that it doesn't have the ability to distinguish between this incredibly productive and creative state of bittersweet melancholy versus clinical depression. Mm-hmm. We don't have a language for distinguishing between the two. We don't have a way of thinking about it. Even if you look in the field of psychology, you'll find psychologists talking about this around the edges, but not in the center of the field. And yet, the state of bittersweet melancholy that I'm talking about in my book is one of the greatest power sources that we have of creativity and of human connection and of a sense of self-transcendence and spirituality. So lots of the goodies that lots of people want, both for their work lives, their creative lives, their emotional lives. And yet we're living in a culture that's telling you that the only way to get there is through a kind of relentless, upbeat optimism. And that's just not true. Mm-hmm. All right. That sounds like a thesis statement. I love it. Well, then could you paint a clear picture for us and draw as bright a distinction as we can between depression and bittersweet? Yeah. I mean, so with depression, you're in a state where it's a kind of emotional black hole. You're in a state of despair. You're in a state of hopelessness. You're not in a state of like being in touch with things. You're in a state of like, I'm worthless life is hopeless, I'm cut off, there's nothing to be done. When you're in a state of bittersweetness, you're acutely aware of both the sorrow and the joy in this world and the fact that they're forever paired. But with that comes an acute awareness of beauty, of beauty and an ability to transform pain into beauty. So it's actually a very hopeful state. It's a state of meaning. 
It's the reason that after 9-11, for example, we suddenly had a lot of people signing up for jobs as firefighters. And after the pandemic, we've suddenly had a lot of people enrolling in medical school and nursing school. And neither of those responses make sense on their face. It's kind of like here are people reacting to dispiriting and dangerous situation by signing up for more danger, like signing up to be at the heart of the danger. But what they're really doing is they're turning in the direction of meaning, which is what people have the capacity to do. We have the capacity to respond to life's difficulties by turning in that direction of meaning in our careers and in our, our life orientation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I'd love if we could continue of painting the picture of what you call bittersweet. I guess as I'm thinking about 9-11, for instance, and you know where I was and what's going on, like I, I felt uh, confusion, sadness, shock, anger. Whereas I think of bittersweet as like, oh, my baby's growing up. You know? <laughs> and, and so that, that's what I first think about when a beer is like, oh. Yeah, sure. <laughs> she doesn't want to be held as much or kind of whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? And yeah. So, so that's kind of what leaps to mind when I have the word bittersweet to me. Can mm-hmm. you unpack a bit more of the the vibe, the texture, the look, the sound, the feel of bittersweet as you describe it? Yeah. And actually, you know, the example of your, your baby growing up is, uh, I think it's a fantastic example because bittersweetness really is, it's about, as I say, the, the pairing of joy and sorrow and the fact that that's mm-hmm. what this life is, but it's also about the the recognition that everyone and everything we love most will not stay the same, you know, will not live forever, all of that. And, but, and then what comes with that is this beauty. I have a bittersweet quiz that it's at the beginning of the book, and it's also on my website for people who just want to take it quickly, which is susankane.net. But I can give you a few questions from it to give you a sense. All righty. So one question is, do you react intensely to music, art, or nature? Another question is, do you draw comfort or inspiration from rainy days? That's like cozy, poetic, rainy day vibe. And another one is, do you like sad music? We actually know that people listen to the happy songs on their playlists about 175 times, but they listen to the sad songs 800 times. Hmm. And we know that it's the sad music that gives us the goosebumps and the chills uh, as opposed to the happy music. And I love the happy music and the dance music is great. It's just that there's something in that vein of art created with a tinge of melancholy that gets people in the real heart. Yes. Which is something for creatives to know in general. It's like a, it's part of, it's sort of the secret to the creative sauce. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well you talk about happy and sad songs. I think that that really does nail it because, because I'm imagining, <laughs> yeah, you know, like your wedding playlist, like <laughs> too hot, hot damn, <laughs> you, know, poem, you know, so there's that. And so, and so that's fun. But then as I'm thinking of like, like sad songs, the first thing that came to mind was um, Champagne High by Sister Hazel. Which, if you look at the lyrics, is really heart-wrenching. It's about a person who is at someone else's... Jeez, I'm getting choked up. It was like, he's at someone else's wedding that he was in love with and he had hoped mm. to reconnect, but it just didn't quite work out. Like, doof! Oh, wow. Like, whoa! Yeah, like, yeah. If, you, if you put yourself there, it is. It is deeper and it's it's hitting the heart. And And at the same time, it's not all just gut-wrenching tragedy. It's like, ah, we had something beautiful, didn't we? And so... There it is. 
Yeah, yeah, because what you're really talking about is longing, which is mm-hmm. the real key to human DNA. Like, that's really what drives us at the end of the day. I mean, you look at every single religion, every single religion, it, they're all about the longing for the more perfect and beautiful world, right? It's like you're longing for the Garden of Eden, you're longing for Mecca, you're longing for Zion. The Sufis long for the beloved of the soul, that's what they call the divine. And then we do that creatively too. We have Dorothy longing for somewhere over the rainbow. That's really what glamour is. Like if there's anybody listening where you're in a glamour field and that's what you need to understand what glamour really is. It's basically, glamour is like, it's a pictorial representation of that perfect state of perfect love and perfect beauty in an otherworldly sense that we long for. You know, like that's why there's the kind of iconic image of the shiny convertible driving around the bend to nowhere and and inside the convertible sit the beautiful couple. And it's like a representation of this perfect love and and they're driving around the bend to the perfect unseen. Mm -hmm. That's what drives people. And what's interesting is, as I think about such a scene, one's emotional response would be, ah, I, I want that. Yes. Or Oh, I'll never have that. And, and, and so, and then maybe, and maybe that's our distinction right there. The, the latter, it's uh, has a bit of hopelessness going on, and so it's actually like what we're talking about is so deep and human. It almost feels inappropriate to, I don't know, weaponize or utilize this. But but that's what you're saying is like it. It is a force, and so if we think about the context of people wanting to be awesome at their job. How do we tap into this in a in a way that we find brings about more wholeness and awesomeness? Well, first of all, I mean, if you want to understand your coworkers, you have to understand, which is one of the, obviously, the great ways of being awesome at your job is to work well and, you know, really care about the people you're working with. You have to understand this is at the heart of their nature and it's at the heart of your nature, too and create spaces for people to show up that way. If, if you're a team leader, for example, but also it's like, let's say even before you get to your job and you're thinking about what the right job is for you, and maybe you're not sure, and maybe you don't know if you're in the right job or if you're even in the right career, I would ask yourself, like, what do you long for? What are you longing for? And pay attention to the symbols in your life. If it's okay, I'll tell you a quick story from, oh, from my life to sort of illustrate what I'm talking about. So I used to be a corporate lawyer before I became a writer, and it was totally the wrong field for me, but I got really caught up in it the way one does. Everybody, you know how it is, you're like in a field and then everyone you know is in that field and you're doing it 24-7, so you're living in this hermetically sealed bubble. You can't see outside it. So I was caught up in it. I was trying really hard to make partner. I was working all the time for for years, and then this day came when uh, when a partner in the firm, and I wrote all about this. He 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 came and he told me I wasn't going to be making partner. Mm. And at the time, I like I received this news as a catastrophe. But I went home the next day, a little bit after that, I, I left the firm, I took a leave of absence. And a few weeks after that, I ended a relationship, seven-year relationship that had always felt wrong. And so now I'm like floating around, I have no career, no love. I'm in my early 30s. And I fall into this relationship with another guy. He's a musician. He's a lyricist, very lit up type of person. And it becomes a kind of obsession and I can't shake it. And I can't stop thinking about him. There's nothing I can do to extricate myself from this obsession. And then a friend of mine says to me, 
She's like, if you're this obsessed with this person, it's not only because of the person himself. It's because he represents something you're longing for. So what are you longing for? And it was like the minute she said that, I knew the answer. He was a musician. He was like, a, he represented this life of, of art and writing that I'd wanted to be part of since I was four years old. I'd wanted to be a writer and I had put all that on hold for decades. And as soon as I understood that, the obsession fell away. I started writing for real and that was it. Uh-huh. That's a kind of dramatic version of it. But I think we can all be asking ourselves those questions all the time. Like you're working really hard so that you can get a house. Like what does the house mean to you? What does it symbolize to you? What are you longing for? And make sure you're orienting your life around really what your heart's longings are telling you because career years have a way of adding up really quickly and you want to make sure you're putting them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And we can often take such wildly circuitous routes to what we're longing for. Like, I don't, did the musician relationship end up working out? No, no. no okay. <laughs> and yeah, that was okay. fine. <laughs> I didn't want to say, like, oh, it's my husband. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, no, no, no. So, no, and it was actually not so long after that that I met my husband. It was mm-hmm. all good. All happily ever after. If we're doing something in order to meet another longing, which you may be aware of or not aware of, we could probably be better served just by going directly after that, what we're, which we're longing for. If you knew what it was. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, that's where I'm going next. <laughs> what are your, your pro tips on surfacing that? Well, I mean, for most of all, really to pay attention to what it is. Like what, what, is, the, what is the key question that you keep asking yourself? What's, what's the thing that you're staking everything for? Um, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Like underneath it all. What's the life you truly want? What, is, what does home look like to you? I would ask yourself that question, getting to this fundamental like existential longing that we all have. We're all longing for home in some kind of way. That's how humans are designed. So what does home look like to you? Mm-hmm. And could you share with us uh, a few articulations of that from folks that you've, you've spoken with, written about, talked to? Gosh, let me think of some good ones for you. I guess what I'm saying is, I imagine if you say, what I'm longing for is a Ferrari. Uh-huh. It's like, mm, that's probably not quite the core of it. Well, it's funny that you say that you give that example of the Ferrari because uh, I actually wrote in the book about this seminar that I attended about the longing for love. It was given by this great writer, Alain de Botton, and he actually gives the example of a Ferrari owner. It's like that very often the person who's buying the Ferrari, they're not necessarily after the Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're after love and admiration. That's that's often what's motivating them. So it's like always looking, you know, two or three steps underneath. Very often when you feel like absolutely driven by something, there's often something going on underneath it to ask yourself what the true motivation is, what the true source is. So here's another example of somebody who I, I interviewed. So she had been working at an international consumer goods company, uh, doing Mm -hmm. sort of consumer research for some years. And in this work, she, you know, part of what you have to do with consumer research is you're, you're listening to the stories of your consumers, right? You're asking them a a lot of questions, which is something she found that she loved doing. She loved listening. She loved drawing them out. She loved hearing their stories. And the more she did this and the more she listened to the women's stories and the women's dissatisfactions, the more with their lives that they were talking to her about, the more it touched 
some kind of like a, a primal longing in her to go back home. She was from the Middle East originally. She had come from a family where there'd been a lot of suffering and abuse of the women in the family. And she realized what she wanted to do was like a kind of healing work of the kinds of women who had been in her family, who these women in the consumer research job had reminded her of. And they they kind of like set this longing alight in her. And so she goes back to the Middle East and she starts, and I'm being vague about where she's from because she didn't want me to use her name, but she starts a not-for-profit where she's helping refugees and helping former women prisoners. And she's doing this work for them, but what she's really doing is trying to correct some of the wrongs that had been done to the women of her family. And it was like, that was when she started to feel whole is when she did that kind of work. Whereas the whole time she'd been at the consumer research firm, she was like fascinated by the stories, but felt a kind of, she called it like a numbness and a deadness inside. And she started to come alive when she did that kind of work. But what ignited in her was the moments of listening to those women's stories and realizing that was like touching off the longing in her. So is that the pathway that this often goes when you zero in on the longing? And then you go pursue that well. Wholeness and aliveness is on the other side. It often is on the other side, yeah, because it's telling you where your sense of the love that you're seeking, the the full love that you're seeking, you know, where it is for you. The moments that you have longing are often a clue to what those are. Just the way, like by analogy, if you pay attention to the people who you you envy, like envy is not such a nice emotion, but it's an incredibly instructive emotion because like with career envy, you're not going to have career envy over somebody who has a job that you don't want. You're just going to feel happy for that person. If you're feeling envy, you might feel ashamed of yourself for feeling that way, but it is a great clue that they're doing something that you wish that you you were doing. So it's a great sign. And longing is the same type of sign. Mm-hmm. And so there's many flavors of longing, but it is love at the root of them all? Or is that one of of several kind of key flavors or archetypes? I would say there's different manifestations of the same thing. For some people, it looks more like love. And for some people, it's more like beauty. And for some people, it's more like truth. Mm -hmm. But it's this sense of like what perfection looks like to you, like a kind of otherworldly perfection. Mm -hmm. And so this wholeness, how do you know when you got it? You just know. I thought you'd say that. You just know, yeah. (laughs) It's like, I feel pretty whole. (laughs) It doesn't mean that you're like, okay, now I'm going to sit on the couch forever because I'm whole. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that you're on the right journey instead of on the wrong journey. So you're still journeying, but you're like on the right path. Okay. Well, so then can we talk about some perhaps practical do's and don'ts when it Mm -hmm. comes to inside our own heads and emotions? If, you know, we experience some, some sadness, some disappointing, Mm -hmm. some disappointments, there's some distinctions there between that and bittersweet. And so how do we think about running our brains and our emotions optimally in that, I guess, is it could conceivably be possible to quote unquote wallow or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. be torn apart sounds dramatic, but <laughs> I'm thinking of my kids and Daniel Tiger and big feelings <laughs> right now. It's like, as you're exploring yourself and you're finding these, these breadcrumbs how do you recommend that we explore, engage in a way that's likely to lead to insight and constructive goodness versus 
for lack of a better word, wallowing. No, I'm actually glad you're using that word wallowing because I think that that is the fear that many people have if they um, if they tune into this aspect of their emotional lives. I think they're afraid they'll start wallowing and never come out. So they'd rather not go there at all. But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, just remember the art is like to balance it all out. But one really great technique, just to keep it super practical, is the art of expressive writing, which basically means, especially when you're feeling something that's amiss, something that's wrong, something that's upsetting you, whatever it is, to just quickly write it down and, and don't try to write it well. You, you might rip it up as soon as you're done writing. But the very act of articulating what you are feeling, what you're experiencing, is incredibly transformative. And we know this from the work of the psychologist James Pennebaker at UT Austin, who's done all these incredible studies finding that when people do this, it improves their health, it improves their career success, um, it, it improves their sense of well-being. He did this one study where he looked at a group of 50-something-year-old engineers who had been laid off. So they were quite depressed about it. And, um, and he asked half of them to do what I just described, you know, to write down what they were truly thinking every morning. And then the other half would just write what they had eaten for breakfast that day. Mm-hmm. And the first group who'd written down truly the expressive writing, they were, I think it was three times more likely to have found work several months later. Uh, mm. they, they had lower blood pressure. They had a greater sense of well-being. Like, just these astonishing findings that you can't even believe are true, except he's repeated these studies again and again in all different circumstances. So this is something that we could be doing privately, this is something we could be bringing to our teams. You know, we could be distributing blank notebooks and having time for people to kind of in an alone together way, you know, write down what we're thinking. You can invite people to share if they want to, but they don't have to do it. But it's just creating spaces for people to show up to themselves, if not to each other, in in a fully whole way. And so with the expressive writing of, of what we're feeling, that, that's just the extent of the prompt. Hey, what are you feeling? That is the extent of the prompt. Yeah, what is it? And and if there's something that's upsetting to you right now, um, write it down. Just get it out. Don't worry about the grammar or the spelling or anything. Just get it out. Get it out. What ends up happening, you don't really need the prompt. What ends up happening is that people just instinctively start writing in a way that is trying to make sense of their experiences. At, mm. at a certain point, they start doing that for themselves. And so like they start using words like, oh, what I've learned is or what I'm thinking actually happened was. And that may be where some of the magic lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm thinking right now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sick. I don't oh. like it. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. <laughs> thank you. You don't look or sound sick. Oh, thank like, what's you. up? We're getting better. Oh, man, we got some COVID to sinus infections going through the whole family. Ugh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You're very matter of fact about it. Well, we've had COVID before, and and so it, the, the worst is behind us. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's so that's unpleasant, and and so yeah, I'm sorry. I, I guess as I as I think about it, you can arrive at on the surface level, it might not seem like there's much to it. Yep, being sick sucks. That's true, but it, as we as I think about it more in terms of the the well, well, why? Well, well what's so What's so troubling about that for me? Like, and how do I feel diminished? And, and why does that matter to me? 
then we start to get into some interesting themes that can be insightful and actionable. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'll give you a way to do that, but also to then kind of do the same thing, but sort of turn it outwards. And first, let me set this up for you. There was this video that went viral a couple of years ago. It was put together by the Cleveland Clinic Hospital to train their caregivers in empathy. And the way this video worked, it basically like it took you through the corridors of the hospital, just showing you random passersby, people you'd normally walk past and not really think about it. But in this case, there were little captions underneath each person telling you what they were going through at that moment. And sometimes it was something nice, you know, like just found out he's going to be a father for the first time. But because it's a hospital, often the captions Mm -hmm. are more things like, you know, under a little girl going to say goodbye to her father for the last time. Like these incredibly like heartrending captions. And you can't watch this video without completely tearing up. It's impossible. But the thing I started doing after having seen that video, like the thing that really struck me about it is how anonymous all those people in the hot corridors normally would be. And all it took was like one little half a sentence caption to completely transform them into full-hearted protagonists mm-hmm. of their stories and that I was part of those stories. So I started just reminding myself all the time to wonder what people's yeah. captions are. Mm. You know, and I do it when I go to the grocery store, like the, the person checking me out at checking out the groceries. What what are her captions? And maybe you know them and maybe you don't, but the it's a very transformative way to interact with people, to be thinking in those terms. And with our colleagues at work, we can do that, take that a step farther because there actually are all kinds of clues, if not outright knowledge about what, what's going on for them. What's powerful about that for me is just sacredness or sanctity of, of the human person mm-hmm. in front of you. Mm-hmm. And, and in so in, in being aware of that, of course, these things, we've all got things going on. But calling them to mind can just be so transformative in how you interact with everyone, always. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like, okay, you are not just a person, you know, taking my credit card. Like you've, any number of these things could be going on for you. and, And as a person, you are worthy of respect and acknowledgement and my attention as opposed to my phone, (laughs) like clicking around my phone while you're ringing things up. Yeah. I'll give you another one for people to do. Well, this one could work for people to do either with their own selves or, or with teams or coworkers or whatever. And that is to begin your day by proactively engaging with beauty in one way or another. And this is actually a great exercise to do with a team because you could do it in a kind of show and tell type of way of everybody bringing something in that they find especially beautiful, whether it's music or a snapshot or whatever it is. But when you're interacting with beauty, we actually know this from from studies. It's basically like tapping into the same the same brain centers that you experience when you're falling in love. So it's like really tapping into your reward centers and it's tapping into a state of that that kind of predisposes you creatively. So I did this the whole time I was writing my book. I was following all these art accounts on Twitter. And every morning I would start my writing day by picking a favorite piece of art and sharing it on my social channels. And like, not only did that get my 
my brain in the right headspace to be creative, but also it was connecting me every morning. The first thing it was doing, it was like, I was like plugging into this community of people who cared about art and beauty the way I did. And that was incredibly sustaining. And it also grew our community together. So that's also the kind of technique that people don't think about. It's not, it doesn't have to do with bittersweetness per se, but there is something about engaging with beauty that gets people interacting with each other in a kind of truer way, in a more whole way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess beauty can have many forms and flavors in terms of, is this research on visually, I guess there's visually, and then there's music or auditorily. And I suppose maybe there could be other modalities associated with beauty. Yeah, and that's an interesting question. I'm trying to think if the studies that I'm talking about were only looking at visual art or other forms. I'm not sure, but I don't see why it would mm-hmm. be any different, really. Sometimes I feel beauty with an excellent hand-washing session. <laughs> like if you have just fantastic soap <laughs> and water that's warm and gross, right? I know people talk about singing happy birthday. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, oh, no, no, just treasure <laughs> this moment. It's so glorious. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's wherever you find it. I guess that's why they make all those beautiful soaps. <laughs> Didn't think we'd end up here, Susan. <laughs> all right. Well, before we hear about some of your favorite things, any key things you really want to make sure folks who are seeking to be awesome at their jobs know about Bittersweet? I think we've covered a lot. I, I guess I would say for those who are on the creative side of the work life to just know that one great thing you can do creatively, it's like whatever pain you can't get rid of, take that and make it your creative offering. That's really what the great creatives have always done. There's always been this kind of transformation. It's a kind of like alchemy. So to tune in that way. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I'll give you the quote that I used as the epigraph for Bittersweet, which is kind of like my whole philosophy in this book. It comes from Leonard Cohn, and the quote is, there is a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I'll give you one from one that I also talk about in Bittersweet, and it comes from Dacher Keltner, who's this great psychologist of Berkeley. And he has studied what he calls the compassionate instinct. And... He basically studies the way in which the expression of sorrow is a kind of bonding agent for humans. And that this is because we're evolved to be to be able to take care of babies who are utterly vulnerable and dependent on us. And but from from that beginning comes our greater ability to respond to vulnerabilities of all kinds. So what he figured out is that we all have a vagus nerve, which is this big mm-hmm. bundle of nerves in our bodies. It's extremely large. It's extremely fundamental. It regulates our breathing. It regulates our digestion. And also, if you see another person or being in distress, your vagus nerve will become activated so that like on a pre-conscious level, you just, you're not going to feel good for as long as you see someone else in distress. You're going to want to do something about it. So I would say that's my favorite research, this this compassionate instinct that, that Dacker has found. That is so true. I saw someone fall off their bike today outside my office window. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. are they okay? Do I need to go down there? Yeah. Wait eight seconds. Oh, they're cool. They're cool. They're laughing it off. They're getting back <laughs> on the bike. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, he has this term that he calls vagal superstars um, for people whose vagal nerves are really, really reactive. So maybe you're one of those. 
Possibly. And a favorite book? One that's coming to mind right now is the book Flow by the psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Mm -hmm. He's the psychologist who basically discovered the idea that humans are really at their best, you could say most happiness, but just like at our most switched on when we're absorbed in an activity that's completely engaging to us. And we're kind of surfing this channel in between boredom and anxiety. So it's difficult enough that we're not bored, but it's not so difficult that it's making us anxious. We're just like completely happily switched on and engaged. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that has been a life transforming idea because, you know, as soon as I read it, I was like, oh my God, yeah, I love that state. But as soon as I thought of that as something to aspire to, you know, I started trying to structure my days so that I'm in a, a state of flow as much of the time as possible. Awesome. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job. Well, this is very boring, I guess, but it's my laptop. But I will say my laptop is nothing without my cup of coffee next to it. So I might have my cup of coffee here and my candle here. So I think what I'm really saying is that I have these Pavlovian cues that I have used over the years to make myself love sitting down at work. Like I love my candle. I love my coffee. I love my chocolate. And so I never work without those props on hand. Okay. And so I associate the whole thing with pleasure. And is there a particular nugget you share that seems to really connect with your, your readers, listeners, they, a Susan Cain original that is quoted often? I don't know. I will say that I think that the work that I do, like with Quiet and with Bittersweet, the thing that holds them in common is they're both about the idea of finding a kind of hidden superpower, superpowers that tend to be undervalued in our culture that celebrates like the loud and the shiny and the glib and the, the cheery. It's saying there's something underneath all of that where there are really deep riches to be had. And if, and if you think that we, we all have different superpowers, right? And it, But if your superpower happens to be in that mode, go forth and use it. Don't, far from feeling ashamed of it, realize the power that you possess and go and use it. Mm -hmm. And Susan, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So my website is susancain.net and there's a newsletter that you can sign up for there and lots of information and also courses. I, I have these audio courses that you can take where I send you kind of little audio and uh, written texts every morning. So that's at my website, susancain.net. And I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So you can find me there too. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I'm going to say what I said before, like use your superpower, whatever it is, figure out which one is yours and use it. All right, Susan, this has been such a treat. Thank you for sharing and, and keep doing the great work you're doing. Thank you so much, Pete. And I really hope you all feel better. No, thank you. <laughs> I really appreciated Susan's perspective about paying attention to what you're longing for and envious of to uncover what could really be a powerful driver for motivation, fulfillment, wholeness. Reminds me a bit of the conversation we had with Marcus Buckingham about those red threads. So you might want to check out that one as well. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP775. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. 
You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.